You ever have one of those weird moments where you have like a song stuck in your head and then you turn on the radio and it's on the radio? Um, that happened this morning because I was, that last song we just sang, I had that song in my head this morning as, as I was downstairs kind of getting ready for Bible class and I don't think I was whistling it or anything when Jonathan walked by. So great coincidence, but I love that song. Um, <clears throat> we started a new series uh, as of last week focusing on being clothed with Christ and the various instruction in Scripture to clothe ourselves in, in good things and in meaningful things and in purposeful things. But this is a phrase so constantly repeated throughout Scripture that we cannot ignore its significance. And last week we, we discussed a little bit about the importance of this concept of, to, of clothing ourselves or covering ourselves or wrapping ourselves, being adorned with these phrases that repeat throughout Scripture, because they bear a spiritual significance and a cultural significance and something we can understand. I don't know that any of us will ever in this life be able to literally grasp the way that our soul and the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ interact, coexist, and connect with one another in a literal way. But I do believe I understand what it means to put clothes on. And that's how the biblical authors describe our relationship with the blood of Christ. It clothes us. It covers our nakedness. It protects us. It announces who we are. It conveys meaning. And so, as the biblical writers, they use language the same way we use language, so this idea is brought forth to us. And we want to focus on that and look at the various ways that Scripture tells us to clothe ourselves. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this beautiful verse from 1 Peter that Christian read for us about being clothed in humility. Every day when we wake up and we get dressed for the day, we are making a choice. And we make that choice day after day, sometimes throughout the day. You might wear something different in the morning than you're wearing in the evening. Or if you have an event to go to, you might change clothes or, or put on something different. Everybody has their fancy clothes, and everybody has their laying around the house clothes. Uh, we, we all we, we kind of have different um, different things to put on for different events and different activities. Uh, when I was in in school uh, at Harding, they still had some dress code rules back then. Uh, I'm sounding like an old man now when I go back and I eh, look at what these kids are wearing now. But uh, you know, when when my dad was at Harding uh, back in the late '70s and early '80s. Women were not allowed to wear pants on campus, and I think maybe they were allowed to after a certain hour of the day. I think by then they had gotten, they gotten real liberal by then, uh, and they let them wear them in the afternoon. When I was there, that was not the issue, but wearing shorts on campus before 3 p.m. was against the rules. Now, that, even now, that, that was less than 20 years ago, and that seems crazy to me. I mean, if... If shorts are inappropriate at 2 o'clock, certainly they'd be inappropriate at 4 o'clock. But that was not the rule. Uh, I think that rule's gone by the wayside as well now. But we, we have these kind of guidelines for when certain things should be worn and when they shouldn't. And we make choices based on these sometimes arbitrary guidelines, sometimes very seemingly meaningful guidelines. But we understand 
that what we put on is a choice, and we make those choices day after day, and after so long, those choices become your style. They become what embodies you. They become a hallmark of who you are, and they proclaim certain things. They say certain things about who you are when you wear them. These are the choices we make every day, and this is an important aspect of why Scripture talks about being clothed in these things we read about, being adorned, because what you wear projects something. It communicates something, and those choices you make daily begin to communicate and build certain things. It's also true that what we say to people in what we wear and how we present ourselves can impact how they respond to us. Certain items of clothing, certain things we wear, give off an impression. We talk about the first impression being the most important, right? That's always, you know, you can't get back that first impression. It's so important. Because once someone has developed a concept of who we are, that now colors how they will respond to us. And how they respond to us impacts how we respond to them. This is the basics of communication. There's a feedback loop. Uh, Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto, wrote a book several years ago called 12 Rules for Life. It's a really interesting book, and I highly recommend it. The very first chapter, the very first rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. That's the first rule. Posture. Posture changes the way people perceive you and in turn changes the way they treat you, which in turn will change the way you respond and how you live. It's taking advantage of that feedback loop to improve your life. That's his argument with that rule. Because people who lack confidence tend to look like they lack confidence. And when they lack confidence, they're treated like people who have no confidence, and then they have less of it. But if you will act and carry yourself with confidence, people will treat you differently and then you eventually build real, genuine, organic confidence. And he cites a study that was done about lobsters. I know, people are paid to study lobsters. They study these lobsters, and lobsters are incredibly territorial. Uh, they build their little homes, and they're very territorial about them, and, and the males were always invading each other's territory because they're looking for a mate, right? That's just the way of the world. And they were noticing these lobsters, the ones, because they have to fight, and when they fight, there is a victor, and he gets the girl, and he runs off with the girl. They were noticing the physical changes in posture in the lobsters that lost the fight. They actually moved slower. They, they weren't perky. They kind of moped around well, like somebody had just been dumped, frankly. And they became less attractive to potential mates who would then avoid them and go to the big, strong lobster that was apparently winning all the battles. And this feedback loop continued, and it only made things worse for those lobsters. It's a fascinating. I, I find that kind of thing fascinating. I'm a nerd, and I like lobster. But how we carry ourselves and what we show to the world creates a feedback loop in our life that informs how people will treat us and how we will treat them in return. And Peter is dealing with that very concept in 1 Peter chapter 5. Because he's talking about how we treat one another and the roles and responsibilities of people in this Christian life and in this body of believers, in this kingdom, in this family that we call church. 
1 Peter is all about God's love and what we do in response to God's love and how we can love one another better. I want to back up a little bit in chapter 5 and start a little bit ahead of where we started with Christian's reading and go to verse 1. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, when we see the word elder, um, we think various things. I think most often, at least in churches of Christ, we tend to think about elder as an official church position, right? We, we uh, appoint elders. We elect elders. And that's very, that's, that, that's something that's a part of our church culture, but it's not always a part of other church cultures. Other denominations and other groups have other means of governance. They have boards of directors or trustees or elder boards. Very different than the way we look at church leadership. And it's interesting because if you go to larger churches that have larger elderships, there's not much of a difference between the way the churches of Christ do it and some of the larger denominations do it. We've been saying for all these years we're not a denomination, but we keep trying to act like it. And the way that we look at church leadership and the church officers that we appoint is one of those areas that we need to revisit. I won't preach on it too hard today, but it is something we need to revisit because I don't know that we always get it right. When we think of elders, we think of, yes, older people, and in the churches of Christ, older men who have demonstrated an ability to lead, but most often what you find in, the, in, in, in some congregations is it's somebody with some prominent position or a certain amount of money in their bank account or a business acumen that's been demonstrated. or they're, you know, They're all these things that you don't find in 1 Timothy, but they're the quiet qualifications that we all sort of think of when we think of elders. So I want you to try and break free for a minute of thinking of elders in the terms that we have come to understand them when we read Peter's words. He's saying, I want to encourage and give some instruction to the elders among you. Yes, they appointed elders in the early church, but no, it did not look like the way we appoint elders. Uh, Point number one, the preacher appointed the elders back then, so uh, I don't think you guys want that, but that's what they did. Timothy, with Paul's encouragement and instruction, appointed the elders in the church that he was helping to plant. We don't do that, do we? Right, because our concept of eldership and leadership is different. These are spiritually mature, gifted people who were in charge of not just leading and making business decisions for a church or for a congregation or for a group of people. They were responsible for the spiritual development of people around them. They were spiritual developers, And I only go into that tangent there to help you wrap your brain around what it is that Peter is encouraging in these people he's speaking to. Because he's about to address two different groups. And it's important that you understand what those groups are so that the compare and contrast works. These are not the appointed men that meet once a month and make decisions for the church. That wasn't what it looked like in the first century. These were the spiritually mature people in a congregation that everyone deferred to in their wisdom and in their leadership and in a very important word that comes in verse 2, shepherding. They shepherd or pastored. That's, that's what the term means. So Paul, or excuse me, Peter is saying that I want to encourage you because we're both spiritually mature leaders in the church. 
that your number one job, in verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, how does he describe what shepherding is? Exercise oversight, not under compulsion. So you, you want to... You want to be involved. You want to be seeing what's going on. You want to see where the hurts are, where the needs are, where the deficiencies are, but you're not forcing anybody into anything. But voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, not, not for greed, but with eagerness, because you want to, not because there's something in it for you. Verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. You are not better than them. And you don't get to hang that over their head. But proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's encouragement here to these spiritually mature leaders. These who should be held up as those who are wise and those who are, are charged with this important task. But then look at the instruction given. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. All right, makes sense, right? We've just said the elders, you're up here, and you need to, to lead in this way, by example, with purity of intention and heart, with kindness and gentleness, and you younger people, you need to do, you need to listen to them, and you need to obey them. But then this, and all of you, that is, that is a collective, and all of you. And by the way, that collective applies to the elder and the younger. Don't get confused there by how we insert English grammar in. He says, you elders need to do this, you younger men do this, and all of you, everyone, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is clearly making a point that we've got two groups of people here with two different purposes and two different sets of instructions because in life, sometimes we have different roles and we have different places that we stand for a time. I am known by a lot of different names. People call me a lot of different names. Some of them I can't say here. But people call me a lot of different names. I'm Dad. I'm Derek. I'm Son. I'm nephew, I'm grandson. I have a lot of different roles. A lot of different jobs sometimes. And I'm seen a lot of different ways. And all of those names convey something different. Sometimes we have different roles. In this case, we have elders and we have the younger. We have the shepherds and we have the flock. And for all the instruction that's given to them, what is the one instruction that unites them and what instruction unites all of us as Christians? You need to make the choice every day to put on certain clothes, and those clothes are those of humility. Adorn yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with humility. Why? Like we said before, it will impact the way people see you, how they respond to you, and then how you will respond to them. Peter's saying you've got to create that positive feedback loop. You elders, as you shepherd, as you lead, as you bestow wisdom on a younger generation to develop them and grow them and train them up as Christians, do so with humility so they will accept your teaching. And you receiving the teaching, absorb that with humility. Because only with humility can you learn. 
See, you've got to accept that you might not know something in order to learn. The kid that thinks they know everything doesn't pay attention in class and doesn't take notes. But the kid that thinks they got something to learn, they listen. And a teacher's job is convincing them they don't know everything and they need to listen. That's a hard task sometimes. That is the instruction that unites all of these different groups. As we put on our Christian wardrobe, the first thing that comes to mind is you cannot be clothed in Christ. You cannot be clothed with righteousness. You cannot be clothed in the glory of salvation if you are not first clothed with humility. It is only when we admit that we need Jesus that we can accept Jesus. But no one who thinks they are saved of their own merit sees the need for Christ. Humility is the foundation of our righteousness, our salvation, and the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why Peter instructs, be clothed in it. Be wrapped in it. Make it a part of who you are. Make it your daily choice till that becomes your style, your calling card, the hallmark of your personality, the thing people think about when they think of you. Let that be what you show to the people you meet and let their response elicit a response from you in kind. If we start with humility, our communication improves. Our relationships improve. Our unity improves. The teaching and training of the next generation of Christians improves. We clothe ourselves with humility. Of all the instructions Peter could give to this one group, he didn't say, and all of you stay away from sin. And all of you act right. And all of you read your Bible every day. And all of you pray. He said, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Because guess what? If you do that, Everything else begins to fall into place. Every spiritual discipline begins with humility. And Peter says that God is opposed to the proud. I don't know about you, but I've seen some of the things God can do. I do not want to be on the other team. He is a, he's not just annoyed by the proud, by the way. He's opposed. He's anti-pride. And he is against your pride when it comes before him. But he gives grace to the humble. Yeah, that's where I want to line up because I need a lot of that. And the way to get it is to clothe myself with humility. Therefore, Peter writes in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Recognize his power, acknowledge it, and humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Why? That he may exalt you at the proper time. This, this goes to the contrary um, counterintuitive thinking that is at the heart of Christianity. Look at the parables of Jesus. How many parables does he tell where the person that looks like they should be on the lower rung of society ends up at the top? We've got wedding feasts where the guests don't show up, so they go out and start bringing in homeless people to fill the seats. Remember that? We've got the prodigal son squandering his living, and getting a party thrown for him. We've got the people that, as, as Jesus describes it, you know, those that are at the head of the table and those that come in last, 
and the last will be first, the first will be last, and the host is going to say, you come up here and sit next to me. There's a lot of counterintuitive thinking that goes contrary to society and culture and our natural pecking order. And this goes right along with it. Those who are humble, those who humble themselves, will be raised up and exalted by God. Why? Because the humble have a heart that is open to the message of the gospel. The humble recognize the need and have the desire to be washed clean and to be brought into union with Christ. The humble accept Jesus, and those that accept Jesus are a part of God's family. The humble find themselves being brought into the family, and the proud will not walk in the door. It's much more difficult to accept Christ when pride rules your life. It's much more difficult to live a faithful life when pride rules your heart. So the humble find themselves with Jesus being more accessible, more easy to grasp and more easy to accept. And so God will lift those people up because they have been found in the kingdom of God while the, while the proud stand outside and wait on an invitation because they believe themselves to be so special that they require one. And another parable of Jesus we see is the tax collector and the publican, as he's called in some translations. And they're both going to pray. And one prays, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this guy. Now that person, hypothetically, probably kept the law very well, was very faithful, did everything right, but knew that he did everything right. And was very proud of the fact he did everything right, even with the backhanded comment, Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. And what did that man do? He humbled himself. He fell on the ground. He beat his chest. And he begged God for mercy. We ought to be the second man, recognizing our shortcomings, recognizing our frailty, recognizing our hopelessness without Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of being clothed in humility. When we understand that we have no power to correct what needs correcting in our soul, we begin to accept that Jesus is the only way. And if we wear that truth around us every day, if waking up in the morning and going about my day and everyone I encounter and everyone I speak to, I had in my mind, I am only worth anything because of Jesus. If that's the way I thought, I would treat people differently. The person that cuts me off in traffic, I will probably respond to them differently if I have on my heart the truth that I am worth nothing without Jesus. Because it causes me to look at that person and say, and Jesus loves them too. It's a hard thing to do. That's why it's a daily choice. Every day, every moment, we decide what to put on, what to wear, and what the world is going to see. Will they see the prideful arrogance of those who think that they deserve what God has to offer? Or will they see the humility of someone who has recognized their fallen state and grasped onto the blood of Jesus Christ as their last best hope, as their only hope? 
as their saving grace. It will change the way you walk. It will change the way you interact. It will change the way people treat you. And it's the recipe for success in a church family, Peter says. The teachers and the students must both approach one another with humility, ready to teach, ready to learn, ready to treat one another with respect, dignity, and love. And what they receive in return is respect and dignity and love. And we walk in paths of righteousness when we recognize that our feet are set in front of us by our God and our King, who in love sent his Son. Humility is the first layer of the wardrobe of righteousness. And the Bible calls on us to be clothed in humility. That's a hard lesson for me. That's a real tough one for me. Because it's very easy for me to acknowledge I don't have a home in heaven without Jesus Christ. I don't have a relationship with, uh, with God without his son. I can get there. I can accept that. I understand the theology of that. But in my day-to-day interactions, I draw sources of pride from all other kinds of places and convince myself that I'm better than I really am and that I have permission to act however I want. That's a challenge for me. But the same thing that reminds me to be humble in the face of God and the prospect of heaven ought to remind me to be humble in the day-to-day interactions with the people around me because I might be the only chance they have of seeing what it means to follow Jesus. And that's a burden I should bear more consciously. And it's hard. It's a daily choice we make. And as much as I'm trying to improve in that way, I hope you are too. And that we can walk together and improve one another because that's what we're supposed to do. Peter writes these things. God speaks these things. But they always know as they say them and as they write them, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to get it right. That's why there's room for God. Because those who are humble in their heart and are clothed with humility are not always going to behave perfectly. They're not always going to treat one another perfectly. They're not always going to live perfectly. But what does Peter say? Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God will be lifted up at the proper time. God will raise you up to be more than you ever could be on your own. We we believe in Jesus. We believe in the saving power of his blood. Peter's saying, just act like it. Just act like you believe that. If we really acted like the Bible is true, how different would we live? Yeah, I know the Bible's true. We all believe that. But do you live like it's true? That might be different. We're on quite a journey. It's a difficult one, and we need one another for it. And if you are in need... On that journey, we want to pray for you. If you want to accept Jesus Christ and be baptized into a union with his blood, to be clothed with him, we want to make that possible for you. If there's anything you need, we invite you to come now as we stand and while Jonathan leads us in song. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he...